Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this episode, we continue our exploration of the book The Dream Betrayed, Religious Challenge of the Working Class, by the American Lutheran scholar Karen L. Bloomquist, published by Fortress Press in 1990. Although Director of Studies for the Commission for Church and Society of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America at the time the book was published, Bloomquist drew heavily on her experience of ministering to working-class congregations to describe the essential dilemma of the working class in the industrialized West. This dilemma was the failure of the neoliberal dream to reward the working class with the upward financial and material mobility which it promised would be the result of a lifetime of hard work. This dilemma is exacerbated by the continuing enslavement of the working class to this failed dream, precisely because it represents the only framework for reality which the working class has known, and which accordingly forms their social attitudes and reactions to other social justice claims. Tragically, the church aids this enslavement precisely because it continues to perpetuate the myths about work which the prevailing culture imposes upon the working class. The challenge for the church has become how to declare the gospel in a way that embodies itself in the realities faced by the working class, all the while offering both a critique of that reality and a vision of a viable, transformative alternative. And with all that, we come to episode 14, The Dream Betrayed Part 2, Religion and the Realities of Class. Bloomquist declares that the religious yearning of the working class is for freedom, dignity, and a sense of worth. This manifests itself in the intensely felt need for material salvation, for liberation from the economic and social forces upon which they are dependent. In this sense, at least, the realm of religion is viewed by the working class as being potentially free from external social control, a place of potential freedom from oppression in which they can get a glimpse of what the liberated life might look like. To this extent, Bloomquist argues that it is necessary to recognise the religion of working people as a form of social expression, one which might be permeated with expressions of popular culture, but which nonetheless gives voice both to the laments of their captivity to the depredations of corporatized capitalism as well as to their yearnings for freedom from its alienating effects. This religion is materialistic, 
arising from the concrete historical circumstances of the working class, and which, by the way, helps explain the popularity within economically depressed communities of megachurches preaching so-called prosperity theology, precisely because that theology touches on the chief yearning of the working class. Working class religion, moreover, is based on communally held standards of common sense, is emotive rather than intellectual, is disciplined by cyclical rituals, and embodies an inherent social and political conservatism. Yet the religious sensibilities of the working class do not necessarily translate into church attendance. This is because church is often another realm in which working class people are looked down upon and made to feel inferior. The church becomes for many working class people a suspicious space in which the education of the clergy and middle class attendees as well as the often observable gap between espoused beliefs and realised actions, makes the church another source of hypocrisy and oppression. This is also why the religion of the working class is as likely to be expressed in the shopping mall or the pub as it is in the church, because these are realms in which working class people feel accepted as being among peers and equals. Classism within the church often manifests itself most immediately in the use of language. Bloomquist notes that language often reflects social structures and how individuals understand themselves within those structures. Overbearing language in worship reinforces differences in educational opportunity, highlights relative socio-economic rankings among church members, and works to both alienate and silence those who find such language problematic. Thus, language becomes a mechanism for exclusion and classism within the life of the church itself, pitting the nuanced reflective style of academic language and experience against the direct concrete expression and realities of the working class. Within this conflict, the message is clear, the analytical, sceptical worldview of the educated middle class is superior to the rules-based, command-oriented values of the working class. This divide is exacerbated by liturgical styles that emphasize an impersonal, cosmic, transcendent God, one that appears an intellectual construct rather than the deeply felt personal deity of popular belief. Such styles of worship not only alienate working-class people, they cut them off from expressions of religious belief, which give voice to their desire to be free from structures of authority and oppression. In this sense, the worship of the church becomes an instrument of social control rather than the vehicle of social expression. Bloomquist also notes that classism occurs through the organisation and decision-making structures of the church. Members of the managerial and professional classes are often welcomed into the church's authority structures precisely because their experience and knowledge is deemed to be both useful and relevant to the running of the church. This immediately establishes a barrier to working-class participation in the church's decision-making apparatus precisely because working-class people are not deemed to be in possession of either the knowledge or experience required for complex decision-making or problem-solving. 
the church in such circumstances becomes merely another corporation inhabited by experts telling others what to do and believe. The irony and tragedy of the exclusionary effects of classism within the church is that the church might otherwise fulfil an important social function for working class people. This function exists as a network of primary social relations, a community that nurtures a bond far more important than one's deemed capacity to make decisions or get results. Such nurturing has the power to build a sense of solidarity that is critical within a world where individuals feel isolated and incomplete. Yet time and again, the real business of the church, its administrative and corporate functions, is prioritised over this nurturing of solidarity and personal relationships. Thus it is that the church itself often replicates the disappointment embedded within the failure of the neoliberal dream. So often it promises community only to deliver bureaucratic structures and social exclusion. The church often not only mirrors, but actively embodies the failed dream of neoliberalism in ways that are every bit as destructive to working class people. The point for Bloomquist is that by not addressing the yearnings of the working class, the church itself is not able to access the transformative power of the gospel. Indeed, the message the church conveys through alienating liturgical practices and corporatist internal structures is that the power of class values trumps the heart of the gospel within the internal life of the church. This in turn entrenches prevailing social, cultural and political ideologies as the lens through which the church's tradition is viewed. The failed dream of neoliberalism becomes the often hidden mechanism through which faith is privatised and existing power structures legitimated. An example of this occurs in the view of the religious professional as the manager of the company. In such a paradigm, in which religious expressions are colonised by the very ideologies from which working-class people seek escape, the authoritarian and hierarchical order of professionals on top and everyone else down below taps into working-class formation into obedience and individualised piety as coping mechanisms in a hostile world. This in turn shapes working-class understandings of God as a distant hierarchical authority to whom one must submit, a submission incidentally which serves the interest of those who benefit from a class-structured society. But for those religious professionals who seek to overthrow the colonisation of religious life by the intrusions of neoliberal ideology, a dilemma remains. How do they honour the experience that lies behind the religious expressions to which working-class people give voice, while at the same time critiquing and countering the destructive misunderstandings by which they are held captive. This is especially the case when the yearning of faith, freedom from oppression and indignity, are almost identical with the yearnings of the failed neoliberal dream, freedom from social, economic and political dependence. If the good life, if salvation is defined as more and bigger and better, 
How do those ministering to the working class challenge this understanding in a way that expresses solidarity with, rather than indifference or hostility to, working class suffering and yearning? It is, after all, a dangerous thing to challenge the glittering prospects offered by a dream, even a failed dream. One risks being declared a traitor or a heretic. How then does one challenge those tenets from within the very faith system by which they are legitimated and given power? The power of any idol rests in its capacity to prevent people from seeing alternative ways of living and being. The godhood exercised by the idol is one of unquestioned absolutism. Beyond the reality and its consequences as these are projected by the idol, nothing else is. Indeed, the idol is reality itself. Apart from the idol, there cannot be anything. Thus, for example, the idolatry of the autonomous individual places responsibility upon the individual to succeed, to make something of themselves in the face of every other individual and their will to succeed. Reality thus becomes a competitive space in which hard work, knowledge and luck determine every individual's fate. Cooperation is either not possible or only possible under circumstances that make it a tool of individual ego assertion. To assert otherwise is to either indulge in naive fantasy or else to be guilty of dangerous subversion. Yet even within the reality of the idol, a nagging discontent remains. The experience of working class people is an experience of frustration, of always falling short of the promises made by the ideology of individualism. Yet the resilience of the idol is demonstrated in its capacity to turn this discontent to its own purposes. To the frustrated individual, it declares that they are a victim, that their discontent is a product not of the bankruptcy of the dream to which they cling, but of their having been cheated or robbed of their birthright. The only solution to this victimhood, the only way to regain hope for the good life, is to have further constraints on the individual removed. Thus the beneficiaries of the prevailing order both gather more power into their own hands, while simultaneously stripping the victims of neoliberalism's failure of the potential for solidarity with other victims of that failure. This victimization fuels the drive toward privatization, toward the turning of life in upon itself as the only realm in which the powerless individual can exercise any kind of agency. Faith in this context becomes a private piety in which the self seeks its own happiness and contentment, cut off from the public structures and realities by which it is shaped. But what has been lost through victimization is not regained through privatization, precisely because this privatization represents a withdrawal that renders impotent the capacity of the working class to affect the social, political, and economic forces by which their lives are shaped. Thus the idol masks the contradictions of its reality and continues to hold working class people in thrall. And so the question remains, 
How can this be redeemed? The beginning to that question will be explored in the next episode. And so we have come to the conclusion of another episode of Ergasia. By way of a public announcement, this episode is going to air in Holy Week 2018. After Easter, my family and I will be taking a short vacation, so it may be a little while before the next edition of Ergasia or Ergasia Digest goes to air. In the meantime, and if you haven't already done so, you can check out earlier episodes, including the first ever Ergasia special episode, on the podcast website. I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you all a happy, blessed and safe Easter, and I look forward to your company in the very near future. In the meantime, to leave your thoughts about this podcast, or to offer any ideas for future episodes, please go to the webpage at www. .ergacia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I'm your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.